we uh, today are starting a, we're taking a break from Matthew uh, for the summer. So we're starting a nuts and bolts series, which we do uh, occasionally, uh, where we just take some time and remind you all of uh, why the church exists and what the church does and who we are and what makes the door the door. So uh, we're going to be on about a 12-week nuts and bolts series and each of the pastors is going to kind of take a different track to run on uh, during those four weeks. And so uh, I'm going to talk about the church, kind of high level, you know, broad level of the church. Uh, Pastor David is going to be talking about evangelism and Pastor Brent's going to be talking about Christian living. And so hopefully by the time we get to the end of the summer, uh, we'll have a, just a good reminder about uh, why we gather, why we do the things we do, what makes us what we are and who we are. So um, I don't have one text that we're going to camp in today. Apologize to you note takers. You'll just have to figure it out as we go. Uh, but I'm going to try to cover maybe a lot of ground in uh, hopefully a short amount of time uh, today. And I want to talk about um, just the church, how the church came to be who and what the church is uh, for today. And so, like I said, we're going we're gonna to try to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So there's a lot that we could get into when we ask the question, uh, what is the church? I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about that question for yourself. What is the church? Or, or maybe a, a more apt question would be, who is the church? And we're going to talk about both uh, today. And so my goal today is, again, to be kind of broad uh, in our approach and try to focus on uh, the big picture uh, of the church outlined in Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. In the beginning, uh, God created all things, right? We know this. Uh, the, the, the very first book of the Bible, the opening chapters of the Bible tell us that God spoke into the nothingness and said, let there be. And much to maybe our surprise, there was. Right? We can do a lot of things as humans today, but we can't speak into the nothingness and say, let there be, and then something happens. Right? God did that. Uh, he created everything that we see, uh, the sun, the moon, the earth, the sky, the plants, the bugs, the birds, the fish, the animals, the water, and, and at the pinnacle of creation uh, was humanity or mankind. God gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed uh, for their good and for their sustenance. And for a short time, creation was in perfect harmony with its creator. Uh, but we know from the opening chapters of the Bible that that short time, we don't know how short it was, but, but we know that it didn't last long. It didn't take very long before God told Adam and Eve that they could have everything. Everything was theirs for their good, for their sustenance, except for the fruit of one tree. And like any good human, right, we don't want anything so bad until somebody tells us that we can't have it, right? Um, I used to know a guy years ago that made these little Bible tracks, um, and he just put on the, the front cover, don't read this, and he would just throw them on the ground or leave them on tables or leave them on benches. And, and every time somebody would grab it and read it because it said, don't read this, right? Um, God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed except for the fruit of one tree. And of course, uh, they ate the fruit of that tree, thereby introducing uh, sin, rebellion against our Creator uh, into the world. And so that perfect harmony that existed for a period of time uh, was broken uh, in that moment when they rebelled against God. And this is a microcosmic picture of what would uh, unfold from that point forward in the world. So by their sin... Everyone that would come after them inherited this, this sin gene, if you will. We, we've all inherited it, right? We have this inherent sin because of the rebellion uh, against the creator of our first parents. 
It didn't take very long as we go through the pages of the Bible, just a few chapters in before uh, we have fratricide, big word, but, but brother killed brother, right? You know the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, it, it only took four chapters into the Bible before that happened. And then another couple of chapters into the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, we're told that God was sorrowful that He had created humanity. Not, not sorry in that He had made a mistake, uh, because God doesn't make mistakes, but, but sorrowful in that the sin of humanity had gotten to the point that it was uh, that, that He decided to flood the earth as a judgment for sin and, and destroyed all of humanity save one family. We all know the story of Noah uh, and his wife and his sons and their wives. God started out by creating two people in perfect harmony, creator and creation. They, they sinned and they marred that harmony. And then God wiped out humanity, save one family, but the pattern would continue uh, of sin running rampant throughout humanity. We get to Genesis chapter 12 where we see that God called Abram in a proclamation of good news. He chose to make of Abram a great nation, right? Um, maybe some of you are familiar with the story of Abraham later would be known as, or Abram later would be known as Abraham. This was nothing of his doing. He, he was considered to be a righteous man, but not because of his good works, but because God declared him righteous, right? And God chose him. And the interesting thing about the story of Abraham is that they said he was going to make of him a great nation. And there are two things that are really required at the end of the day to be a nation, and that's people and land. And God, in calling Abram to be a great nation, called him away from his people and out of his land. And it's kind of like, I'm going to do this with you know, both hands tied behind my back. Right? God's going to do this. And this is a significant moment in biblical history because what would come out of Abraham would be uh, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And so just like God spoke into the nothingness in the beginning and said, let there be and there was, when God proclaimed to Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation, there wasn't anything that previously existed. And in that moment, it became in process of existence. Again, a significant moment into biblical history. It was God's will that Israel would be a community of faith who worshipped Him. Israel was to be characterized as a people by their collective submission to God's rule and God's authority while enjoying His blessings upon them as a nation, as a community of faith and a community of worship of the Creator. But guess what? Like Adam and Eve... They too rebelled, and, and, and the Old Testament is full of God sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to tell the people that they've turned from God and that they need to turn back to God. And, and throughout our, our biblical history, we would see there would be times that they would turn to God, but yet again, they would turn away. And so prophet after prophet would come continuing uh, with this message to remind them uh, of the good news that their creator created them to be in relationship with him, yet somehow the people would continue to reject it and subject themselves to God's judgment. Now, what does all this have to do with the church? Like we're starting off on a positive note here, right? <laughs> this, isn't all, this isn't all doom and gloom. There's, there's some good news coming, 
right? But we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament that starts with God speaking something into existence that didn't previously exist, starting with creation uh, and then with His chosen people. Yet we see sin running rampant, pulling people away, pulling the creation away from its Creator. It's significant to us that we understand that this is the pattern of humanity. And even today, things haven't changed all that much, right? Sin still runs rampant in our, in our world, uh, pulling people away from God. And the message of the Bible is still the same, like to, to repent and to believe, to turn back to God and to turn from our wicked ways. God's unfolding plan from the beginning, we know, is that He would redeem this rebellious people. Right? When, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, when, when the first human beings sinned, were given a prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, right, that the serpent would strike the heel of the woman, but the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And without getting into a lot of detail for today, uh, that, that tells us that there's a plan in place to fix the problem. There's a plan of redemption that began to unfold from the moment that, that humanity introduced sin into the world. In accordance with this plan, when the time was right, the Father would send His Son to serve and to love this rebellious people. And in keeping with the pattern that we see in the Old Testament, when Jesus showed up, how, how did we treat Him? We, we largely rejected Him, right? We largely rejected the prophet of all prophets. Largely didn't respond to the message to turn back to God. All the while, however, God was and is desiring to have a relationship with the people that He created. Think about that for, for a moment. The world gets to a place that sin is so rampant and rebellion is so widespread in Genesis chapter 6 that God says, I've got to judge humanity for this sin. Yet, God loves us enough and cares for us enough to desire relationship, to desire a right relationship between the creation and the Creator. God could have in that moment, at the snapping of a finger or even just at His breath, could have just wiped out everything and said, you know what, I'm going to start over. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. And it's because even in His judgment, God is loving, and even in His judgment, He's merciful and He's gracious. And He continues today to call people into relationship with Him. He continues to call people into relationship with Him so that He could bless them, so that He could love them, so that He could redeem them from the bondage of sin and the ill effects of it. So again, God spoke into existence all of creation out, in, out of nothingness. And the people that He created rejected Him. And then God spoke into existence a nation that didn't previously exist. And that nation rejected the good news of the God who called them. And then finally, He sent His Son, His one and only Son, to come to that creation in the flesh. And that creation rejected Him as well. And we know how the life of Jesus went. We know that, that, uh, that He had adversity throughout His time on this earth. And ultimately, the people that he came to love and to serve would nail him to a cross and kill him. The prophet of prophets. 
But the story doesn't end there. If the story ended there, it would just be kind of a tragic tale, right? But the story, fortunately, doesn't end there. This was all part of God's unfolding plan. That Jesus would beat death by dying. That he would conquer sin by dying and proclaiming victory over it. This is a crazy story that, that if we were writing a story, we, w- we wouldn't write this story necessarily because it's just so crazy and so kind of backwards to our thinking and even upside down uh, to how we would view things. The Apostle Paul tells us that, that the entirety of Christianity hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he was just a good man that did good things and healed people and served and died, again, just a tragic tale. But because Jesus not only died, but because he conquered death and he did resurrect, he walked out of the grave, everything he says and everything that he did matters immensely because of that. There's no other religious leader, if you will, that that conquered death and the grave. And so everything that Jesus said and did, it matters to us immensely. And subsequent to his resurrection... Fast forward now to Acts chapter 2, we, we see His disciples waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, the Helper, capital H, Helper. Right? Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that He must go so that the Helper could come. And that kind of begs the question, how important is the Helper that Jesus had to go so that we could get the Helper? Pretty important, you might say. And this group of people in Acts chapter 2 were, were waiting for, for the promised Holy Spirit and maybe you know the story, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power. Peter, who was kind of a doofus up to this point, stood up in front of a crowd of people and preached in the power of the Holy Spirit about Christ and who He is and what He did. And in an instant, we're told that thousands of people repented and turned to God. They heeded the message and they turned to God. And in that moment, the church was birthed. The church was born. It didn't previously exist prior to this. And by a work of the Holy Spirit, by a work of God Himself, something came out of nothing. Something that didn't previously exist now existed. People responded to the message of God. And so with that background in mind, we see this pattern continue to unfold that God forms people by His Word. Adam and Eve were formed by God just speaking them into existence. Noah and his family were spared from the judgment by God proclaiming them to be spared from the judgment. Israel, the nation that didn't previously exist, was formed when God proclaimed to Abraham that He would make of him a great nation. And the New Testament church was created at the proclamation of the Word of God, right? So that's a pattern that we see. And immediately in Acts chapter 2, when this this kind of newfound church was formed, we're, we're not told that anybody gave them instructions. We're not told that anybody sat a group of leaders down and said, okay, here's what this thing needs to look like and here's how it needs to go. We're not told that. It just seems intuitively that the church began to act. And in Acts 2.42 we read this, that they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, Kind of like what Craig said, it looks like they had maybe some music and some food and God, and it just kind of worked, right? And they didn't require instruction for this to happen. It was this intuitive thing that they began to do. And I think Pastor Brent's going to unpack this a little bit more, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now. But, But as we think of all of this, we put all of this together, all of our kind of broad Old Testament history and getting us now to the New Testament church, um, Here's how I would define the church. If you, if you asked me, if you come up to me and just said, give me a definition of the church, this is what I would say to you. Given all that we just talked about, the church consists of people who are chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and are purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. Working definition of the church. People chosen by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And so I want to take a few moments and just kind of unpack that definition of the church so that we can be reminded of why we exist, right? Do you you ever think about um, why the church exists or why you might be a part of the church? We we, we don't come here as consumers. We we, we do consume, right? We consume the Word of God, right? We consume fellowship. Um, you know, we're going to consume food later today. Like we, there, there is an aspect that we do consume, but the church is not a, a consumeristic endeavor, right? The purpose that we gather on Sundays is not so that we can all just consume, right? There, there's purpose behind our gathering and there's purpose behind uh, why God has established the church. You, you've probably heard it said, I've heard this many times over the years, so I'm guessing that you probably have to uh, maybe pastors standing up in pulpits saying something to the effect that if you were the only person on earth, that Jesus would have died for you. I hate that statement. Uh, it may be true that if you were the only person on earth, that Jesus would have died for you, but you're not the only person on earth. And Jesus didn't die just for you. Jesus died and gave himself up for the church. Jesus gave himself up for a people, not, not a person, Not even a collection of individuals, but he gave himself up for a people, and it's important that we understand that, right? I think pastors over the years have done a disservice by maybe inadvertently promoting this kind of individualistic Christianity, right? It's all about me and Jesus. No, it's not about just, it's about us and Jesus, right? It's not about you and Jesus. It's about us. It's about the church and Jesus, the creation and the creator, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 tells us this, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might, be, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And do you notice the lack of individual language here? It doesn't say that Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Not not that he might sanctify you or present you, but that he might sanctify and present the church, the people of God. 
in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that the church might be holy and without blemish. There's a collective nature to the church that I think sometimes gets lost in our understanding. Right? You, you do have an individual relationship with God. I have an individual relationship with God. I don't, I don't want to shoot that idea down entirely. But, but there's a collective nature that, that's helpful for us to understand, a corporate nature of the church. Titus 2.14 says that He gave Himself to us to redeem us, us, from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people, not a bunch of individuals, but a people for His own possession uh, who are zealous for good works. So again, God spoke into the nothingness and created something that didn't previously exist. When the church showed up on scene in Acts 2.42, nothing like it existed beforehand. And we see from what they did that their practices were very corporate in nature. They gathered regularly. They shared meals regularly. They prayed regularly. They came under the apostles' teachings regularly. They gave to one another regularly. If somebody had extra, they they would give to someone that didn't have enough. If somebody sold a piece of property or something, they would put the proceeds into the kitty so that everybody could be blessed by it. It almost sounds a little socialistic. Almost. (laughs) Very collective, very corporate in nature. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This might be Paul's succinct definition of the church, right? To the church, comma, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Are you getting the collective language in that greeting? Together with those everywhere, in every place. We'll get into this more later, but you know we have... Our, kind of our local church here where you can look around and you can see who's here. And not everybody's here today, right? But, but we know kind of those who are, are part of our fellowship. There's also a universal church throughout the world that, that we can't see. You don't necessarily know when you're walking down the street or when you're in the grocery store or at the park who, who's a part of kind of the larger church. And there are people that, that, that you'll never see Right? Glenn goes across the world and sees people that most of you will never see, that you don't know who are part of the church. We also have kind of time and history, right? The church spans history. And we'll get into this more later too, but the church is going to make it to the end, even in all of its flaws, even in all of its shortcomings. Like the church isn't going anywhere. The Bible tells us that. We don't know who all that entails in the past and in the future. Right? We also have in parts of the world like the church that's underground that, that can't necessarily be visible for fear of persecution. And we'll get into that more later as well. But, but, but the church is, is it's much bigger than what you see here. I guess that's my point. Much bigger even than the here and the now because the church spans history. In Matthew chapter 16... Jesus speaking to Peter while he still was kind of in doofus mode. He tells him that on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's an ironic statement if you know much about Peter that he's giving this statement to Peter who was kind of less than impressive up to this point. Peter, when he was filled with the Spirit, would, would become a gift to the church. But all of that to say that a biblical perspective would be to say that Jesus died for his church collectively, not, not just a bunch of individuals. And I hope that kind of making that line is a clear understanding about the collectiveness versus the consumeristic approach uh, to church. So the gospel isn't just good news for a bunch of individuals. It's good news for all of us, right? It's good news to me. It's good news to you. But God didn't deliver His Son just to to save a bunch of individual people. God gave His Son, and the Son came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many so that a people could be saved, so that a people could be assembled and a people could gather. So again, when God instituted the church, He made something entirely new that didn't exist prior to that moment in history. And the reason that we gather today is is tied deeply to what happened in Acts chapter 2. It's tied deeply to that. We also see kind of throughout biblical history that this call to turn back to God you know, started with two people, went, went to a family, went to a nation. But when Jesus came on the scene, this call to return to God, to come back to God, wasn't just for the Jew anymore. It, it became for the Gentile, right? If, and if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, right? So, so it opened up to everybody when Jesus came. And we're told at the end of the Bible that heaven in heaven will be representation from every people, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language, from every corner of the earth. Right, so the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, which the church is purposed with proclaiming, is for anybody and for everybody. A people chosen by God. A people now who are purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is giving his kind of final goodbyes to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he reminds them that it's their job to care for the church of God. And he reminds them that he obtained that church with his own blood. That the cost at which Christ purchased the church did not come at a cheap one. It cost him his life, and it cost him the shedding of his own blood. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, and for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning from the firstborn, from the dead, that everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What I find interesting about this passage is this, this gives us this really big view of who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created, heaven and earth, invisible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things, we're told. He's before all things and holds all things together. That's a pretty big resume right there. And then, kind of in the middle of this, I I hope you didn't miss it. And if all those things weren't enough, he's also the head of the body, the church. What what kind of importance does does this place on the church of Christ? That that in the middle of all of this, that we're reminded, he created everything, he holds everything together, everything's for him, by him, because of him. He controls everything. Rulers and dominions and authorities. Oh, and he's the head of the church also. The church is kind of a big deal in God's economy. And he purchased that church by the blood that was shed on the cross. And he reconciled those who were not previously reconciled to God. And we'll get into this more later as well, but, but one of the ministries that God has given to the Christian and to the church is the ministry of reconciliation that we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That it's, it's not just a good idea, but it's the plan. Not one of many, but the plan that those who are now reconciled to God would go out into the world and find those who are not reconciled to God and tell them how they can be reconciled to God. It's part of why the church exists. And this is by God's good design and comes at the cost of Jesus' life and the shedding of his blood. And so again, it's important that we remember that the church collectively was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then finally, purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 reminds us that you, Christian, you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, again, the guy guy that was kind of less than impressive for most of what we know about him, writes these words, reminding us that that the church has been chosen by God. That we are a people for God's possession. And the purpose of our existence is that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And that's the testimony of every Christian. I was once in darkness and God pulled me out of it. Right? That's just a quick few words. That's everybody's testimony that knows Christ. 
that we are a people for His own possession so that we might proclaim His goodness in the sharing of our testimony. Once we didn't belong to Him because of our sin and our rebellion. Once we had not received His mercy because of our sin and rebellion. But because He pulled us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, we now belong to Him and we now are under His mercy. That's a story worth telling. That's a story worth telling. And so, when you put all of this together, it seems kind of silly that we might approach our involvement or our connection to church on a consumeristic kind of a level, doesn't it? It seems really silly. What makes sense if all of this is true, and it is true, what makes sense in light of all of this being true is that we would come not just to consume. Like I said before, there is an aspect that we do come and we consume fellowship and we consume the Word And my challenge for us is to consider 
because we're all part of this church. If you call yourself a Christian, if you've come to God in faith and repentance, you've put your trust in Him and your hope is in Him, you're a Christian and you are automatically a member of the church. Right? You belong to the universal church as a follower of Christ. And it is incumbent upon you to do things that will build up the church. It's incumbent upon you to participate, right? You've got to participate in order to do that and to do things that build up the church. And so I, I, just, I hope that we're reminded today about how special the church is because of the lengths to which Christ went to secure the church. A people chosen by God who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and are purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. Father, we're thankful this morning um, for the church. We're thankful that you uh, have instituted it, thankful that you are going to be the one to preserve it. We're thankful that even in all of our flaws, even in our our sinfulness, that that sometimes we uh, can do things uh, that hurt the church and hurt the people, but God, you're bigger than those things and you specialize in redeeming the things that seem irredeemable. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue your redemptive work in our lives, that you would continue your redemptive work here in the church. Pray that you would help us uh, to be good witnesses uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in our community. And we do pray, Lord, in light of these things, that you would continue to grow our fellowship, not for the sake of numbers, uh, but that we would, like in the early church, see people, uh, even on a daily basis, if we might be so bold as to ask, uh, coming to know you, coming to faith in you, coming to repentance. And so, Father, help us uh, to do our part. Help us to love each other well uh, inside the church. Help us to love those outside the church and those especially who aren't like us. And help us to rightfully uh, display and declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.